up on Sunday morning and you come to church and one of the first things that the pastor says in the worship service is today is a special day there's going to be a baptism and you look and towards the front of the church is a family that's gathered and and it might be an infant a child it might even be an adult and at the appropriate time in the service, that family comes forward and they gather around the baptismal font and the liturgy is spoken and the prayers are prayed and the Holy Spirit is called down upon the water. And the water is splashed three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that person is marked with the cross of Christ and sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit forever. And a candle is lit from the Christ candle. A reminder to that family, to all of us who were there that day, that we are called to shine the light of Christ that dwells within us. And we're called to shine that light wherever we go for all to see. But the baptism that Mark wrote about that day, John the Baptist, was nothing like that. No one was wearing an alb and a stole. There were no shirts and ties. John, however, stood out from the crowd. He was wearing a garment made of camel hair, a piece of leather wrapped around his waist. He looked for all to see like an Old Testament prophet, which is fitting because John, in fact, was the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last one before Jesus began his ministry to proclaim the coming of the Lord. And so here he is. He looked like a prophet. He sounded like a prophet. He acted like a prophet. For all we know, he even smelled like Elijah. You see, some 800 years before John the Baptist appeared on the scene, Elijah called Israel to national repentance. He called them to turn to the Lord, to return to the Lord. And now here, all these years later, John the Baptist is doing exactly the same thing. He's asking them, calling them to step away from the sinful culture of the day to a life that focuses solely on God. The context that John the Baptist ministered in was intentional. In fact, it was the wilderness and the wilderness was a reminder to the Israelites of so many things throughout their history. There was the, the wandering, the 40 years of wandering. There was the reminder of Israel's sinfulness and their, their desire to, to begin life anew, to have a do-over, if you will. It's a reminder of of the many times that God spoke to his people and when God delivered his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt, he dumped them right into the wilderness because there's no distractions. Because God's hope was that the people would be able to focus just on him. But John didn't just minister in the wilderness. He lived in the wilderness too. The thing about the wilderness is when we talk about biblical wilderness, we're talking about a wilderness, unless you've been in the Holy Land, you've never seen anything like this. 
The Hebrew word for wilderness is jeshimon, and it literally means the devastation. And it looks like this. This is the wilderness. It doesn't look like the boundary waters. It doesn't look like even the American Southwest. This is Qumran, which is a stone's throw from the Dead Sea. This is where John lived. This is where he ministered between the middle of Judea and the Dead Sea was this wilderness. It was the most, it is the most horrible desert in the world. And while there is some sand, it's mostly limestone. And it looks warped and twisted. It shimmers in the haze of the heat of the day. And the heat is intense. My wife and I had the opportunity a couple of summers ago to go to the Holy Land, and this is taken near the Dead Sea. We were 1,300 feet below sea level, the lowest point in the world, and it was hot. We lived in Arizona for 35 years. We were used to hot. I mean, 110 day after day of 115, that's not unusual. But we stepped off the bus that day, and I thought my face would literally melt off of my head. It was so hot. And you can't touch anything because you'll get burned. And it's as though there's this vast fire that's burning right underneath the surface. You can feel it coming up through the bottoms of your shoes. That's where John lived and where he ministered. He was living the life that God had called him to. He was doing the things that God had called him to do. And his message, oh my goodness, it wasn't for the faint of heart. It wasn't warm and fuzzy. He, re he called out the Pharisees. He rebuked them. He called them a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes. He talked with the, with the common people and said, look, many of you aren't giving but you're called to return to God a portion of what he has blessed you with. He said to the tax collector, stop cheating the people. And to the soldiers, hey, don't be quite so heavy handed. And he would have gathered the people. They came to him in droves. In fact, the, the Greek that Mark uses here doesn't tell us that well, a few people showed up on Monday and on Tuesday there were like 100 or 200 more. The Greek tells us that there was this continual stream of people that were coming to see John, which is crazy because nobody in their right mind ever went to the wilderness or walked through the wilderness unless they absolutely had to. And so John would have gathered these people, taken them from the wilderness to sit along the Jordan River where there might have been a wee bit of shade, maybe a little bit of green. And he began to preach to them about the coming judgment, about sin. He may have recognized some of them. He may have even called people out by name for their sins. He called the people to social justice. But most importantly... He called the people to repentance. And repentance has two parts to it. The first part is you turn away from the sins that have 
that are causing you to be separated from God. And the second part is you turn towards God or you return to God to reestablish the relationship that you have with him. After the people had been duly convicted of their sins, then they lined up in these endless lines of people Picture what it looks like to, to wait to get into a concert or a Packer game or a Brewer game. The lines were huge. And as the people came one at a time down into the water, they were confessing their sins. And they were, it wasn't just a, a mumbling of them, these sins to themselves or to John. No, they were confessing their sins loud enough for the people who were sitting on the riverbank to hear them. In front of God and everybody, they confessed their sins and they went down into the Jordan River and they were immersed into the water and brought back out. A once, one time baptism of repentance, an outward sign of what they had chosen to do inside. But John was very clear with the people. He said, look, this is just a baptism of repentance. But there's one who is coming after me, who is so much greater than I am, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I will drench you with water, John said, but he will drench you with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a cool picture? To, to be drenched, to be sopping wet with the Holy Spirit? When we baptize today, we call, we call the people forward. We call the Holy Spirit down on the water. And I have to tell you, the water in most baptismal fonts is just plain old ordinary everyday water. Most of the time, it comes from the tap. Martin Luther tells us it isn't just the water. It's the water and the word that you're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When you're gathered in worship and someone is baptized, you have a unique opportunity. It isn't just about watching to see if the baby will cry or if the kids will misbehave. Because we, as those who are baptized, are connected to the family of believers, the whole family of believers, which means we're connected to those who have come before us we're connected to those who will come after us. We're connected to believers all around the world. And you, on that day, get to be the representatives of the family of faith who welcome this newly baptized person, your newest brother or sister in that family. And know this. Hear these words. Anybody... Any of us who have been baptized in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is filled with the exact same spirit that came down from heaven that day that Jesus was baptized and landed on him. You are filled with the exact same Holy Spirit that hovered over the face of the deep at creation. Filled with the exact same spirit that descended at Pentecost in tongues of fire. That spirit dwells in you. And how awesome is it 
that you carry the Spirit of the Lord around with you. This baptism of repentance of John's, it was 100% completely, totally radical. They'd never done this before. Can you hear the people saying, we've never done this before. We've never done it like this before. They were familiar with ritual washing. It was done when, when they got ready for a special holiday. The Jewish men would wash in a mikvah, and this is what a mikvah looks like. This one happens to be in Jerusalem. It's, you come down steps, and there's a, a pool that's lined with stone. Jewish men would go into these and wash themselves before they went into the temple. But a full-on baptism, that was unheard of. The only thing that came close was when a Gentile decided they didn't want to live a pagan life anymore. They decided they wanted to believe in the one true God. And so there was a series of things that needed to happen in their lives, including circumcision for the men. And there would be this kind of a, a ceremonial bath, if you will, where all the old pagan ways would be washed away. It was really amazing what John was asking the Jews to do. Astonishing, really. Because he's asking them to be just like the Gentiles. He's asking them to look at themselves as being outsiders, as being unclean, as being separated from God because of their sin. And they did. And they continued to come in droves. And when John spoke to them and he said, look, somebody's coming who's greater than I, who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. People would have immediately thought of Old Testament prophecy, of the words of the prophet Joel. You may recognize them from Pentecost Sunday. They go something like this. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. It's God speaking. I will pour out my spirit and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. And if that wasn't enough, we can look at the prophet Isaiah chapter 11 where God says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, upon the one who is to come. And then Isaiah proceeds to tell us about this spirit. There had to be some kind of a sense of excitement as the people came to John knowing these scriptures that maybe, just maybe, they were this close. Maybe, in fact, they were part of the generation who would get to see the promised Messiah. And then one day it happened. John was standing in the Jordan River. The people were lined up as far as he could see, and Jesus came from Nazareth to be baptized, and he walked into the river, and Matthew tells us that he and John had a bit of a discussion. 
with John saying, look, I, you know what, Jesus, I'm not worthy at all to do this. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no. This has to happen this way to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill righteousness. But John knew, just like you know, just like I know, Jesus had no need to be baptized, none whatsoever. He had no sins to confess. He had no need to repent. But by being baptized, a number of things started for Jesus because this was his moment of decision. He was 30 years old. He'd been living at home all this time. He'd learned a trade from his father, Joseph. He was a tecton, a, a builder. He was a faithful Jewish man. He went to the synagogue. He, he worshiped. And we don't know when Jesus' father, Joseph, died, but it's clear from Scripture that he had some significant responsibilities for taking care of his mother, Mary. And here's Jesus, fully human, waiting for a sign from God, waiting for the, okay, now it's time. And John the Baptist was that sign. Now was the time. This would be the beginning of the humiliation of Jesus. He agreed at that point in time to do the Father's will. And he aligned himself with us, with sinful humanity. This was the moment of identification. Jesus knew who he was, but no one else did. But as soon as he was baptized, as soon as he came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open. The Holy Spirit descended and God spoke. It was very clear that day exactly who Jesus was. And for a brief moment, he got to glimpse his heavenly home and ours. The heavens were torn open. The Greek word there is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used the day of Jesus' crucifixion. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. The temple curtain, 60 feet tall, four inches thick, was torn in two from the top to the bottom. This was a moment of approval. Jesus heard the Father speak. This is my son, my beloved son. I am pleased with you. God doesn't speak like that to anyone else. Not to Abraham, who scripture tells us was his friend. Not to Moses, whom he spoke with face to face. Not David, who had a heart after his own. And this was the moment of equipping. The Spirit descended. It lit on Jesus. It filled him to prepare him for the ministry that he was being called to. The dove is a, a symbol, if you will, of gentleness. And that doesn't mean that Jesus is a softy. It doesn't mean he's a pushover. What it does mean is that he will minister with grace and with mercy. That he will bring peace, that he will love, that he will preach the truth to all who will listen. And it was the moment of fulfillment. Jesus is now taking on that role that throughout the Old Testament we've heard about, 
We've heard throughout the Old Testament of the one who is to come. We know that he's going to be wise. He's full of wisdom and understanding. We know that he would be born of a virgin, that he was a great light, that he would be a suffering servant. But make no mistake, this is not when Jesus became the Son of God. He had always been. This was the Holy Spirit fully equipping Jesus for ministry. We see these words in Isaiah 42. Again, God speaks, and he says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. God is talking through Isaiah the prophet about Jesus. And if there was ever still any doubt, Jesus wiped all that away the day that he returned to his home synagogue in Nazareth and they handed him the scriptures to read and he opened up Isaiah 61 and he read, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to liberate the captives. The spirit is upon me. Being baptized in the Jordan River in John's day was a huge deal. It was a life changer. And it still is today. One of the things that we had the opportunity to do that summer when we were in the Holy Land was to renew our baptismal vows in the Jordan River. And being a pastor on the tour, I had the honor, the privilege of, of helping people to do that, myself and, a, and another pastor whose name was David. And as we stood there in the Jordan River, I couldn't help but think about John the Baptist. We were standing in, the, in that river, and the people in our group who wanted to renew their vows were lined up, waiting. And so people came one at a time. This is a picture of the Jordan River. They came one at a time, and we talked about the river and its significance and, and what it meant to renew our vows that had been made for many of us when we were infants, vows that we affirmed when we had been confirmed. And one at a time, we immersed the people and brought them out. And partway through, one of the women in our group said, hey, Pastor Matt, this is Mildred. This is Mildred. She's from Puerto Rico. And she's in a tour that doesn't have a pastor and nobody in her group wants to do this. Can she join us? Sure, of course she can. And so she waited with our group. And when it was her turn, she came down and she stood between me on the left and David on the right. And, and we talked about the river and its significance. And just as we were getting ready to lower her into the water, she looked at us and she said, but I'm not renewing my vows. I've never been baptized. And I looked at David, and he looked at me, and we looked at her, and we talked about what it meant to be baptized. And she confessed her sins, and she affirmed that Jesus was her Lord and her Savior. And into the water she went, and we pulled her back out knowing full well that her sins had been washed away. 
that she was now filled with the Holy Spirit, that she was our newest sister in the family of faith. And the three of us stood there crying. And she said to us, do you know why I'm doing this? No, no clue. She said, I'm traveling with my 13-year-old son, Brian. I want him to see the places where Jesus walked, to, to go to the places where Jesus ministered. I want him to understand that Jesus is real and that Jesus is the most important person in your life. And she kind of just floated out of the river and was joined by the members of our group. And, and I thought, what a gift for her and for David and I and for our group who had now embraced her and made her one of us. And we continued on. But I couldn't help but wonder what it must have been like for John the Baptist that day to look up and see Jesus, the one who he'd already called the Lamb of God who takes away the Son of the world. Jesus, the Son of God, to see him coming. Jesus, who was willing to become like us so that we can become like him. And so, gracious God, baptism is an amazing thing. Where we're washed, where we're filled with the Holy Spirit, where we're welcomed into the family. And Lord God, I just, I pray that if there are people here today, if there are people who will be watching later, who have not yet made that decision to make Jesus the center of their life, I pray that this would be the time to make their lives new, to fill themselves with the Holy Spirit and to continue on shining the light of Christ. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. We continue on this morning as we confess our faith